Section 20 of Reminiscences and Table Talk of Samuel Rogers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I'll tell you an anecdote of Napoleon, which I had from Talleyrand. Napoleon, said T, was at Boulogne with the Army of England when he received intelligence that the Austrians under Mack were at Ulm. If it had been mine to place them, exclaimed Napoleon, I should have placed them there. In a moment, the army was on the march, and he at Paris. I attended him to Strasbourg. We were there at the house of the Préfet, and no one in the room but ourselves, when Napoleon was suddenly seized with a fit, foaming at the mouth. He cried, Ferme la porte! and then lay senseless on the floor. I bolted the door. Presently Berthier knocked. On the peut pas entrer. Afterwards the Empress knocked, to whom I addressed the same words. Now, what a situation would mine have been if Napoleon had died? But he recovered in about half an hour. Next morning by daybreak he was in his carriage, and within sixty hours the Austrian army had capitulated. I repeated the anecdote to Lucien Bonaparte, who listened with great sang-froid. Did you ever hear this before? Never. But many great men have been subject to fits, for instance, Julius Caesar. My brother on another occasion had an attack of the same kind, but that and he smiled, was after being defeated. Footnote, an allusion to an adventure with an actress. On my asking Talleyrand if Napoleon was really married to Josephine, he replied, Pas tout à fait. I asked him which was the best portrait of Napoleon. He said, That which represents him at Malmaison. It is by Isabelle. The marble bust of Napoleon by Canova, which I gave to A. Baring, is an excellent likeness. Did Napoleon shave himself? I inquired. Yes, answered Talleyrand, but very slowly and conversing during the operation. He used to say that kings by birth were shaved by others, but that he who has made himself roi shaves himself. To my question whether the dispatch which Napoleon published on his retreat from Moscow was written by Napoleon himself, Talleyrand replied, by himself, certainly. Readers note, Talleyrand speaks. When I arrived at Paris on my return to France, footnote, Talleyrand returned to France from America about 1796, Madame de Stal was very anxious to serve me and I was introduced by her to Barras, who gave me an invitation to his country house near Mali. I arrived there very early in the day, and was sitting there alone, when two young men entered the room and began a discussion, saying, Shall we go, or shall we not? At last they cried, Allons! And away they went. Not long afterwards there was great distress in the house, they had gone to bathe in the Seine, and one of them, a natural son of Barras, had been drowned. 
Barras was inconsolable, and all my endeavours to console him, such as they were, for I returned with him in his carriage to Paris, were of no avail. But they gave him such an impression in my favour that he rendered me every service he could afterwards and as long as he lived. He introduced me to Napoleon, and I came into office almost immediately. He always spoke of my kindness on that occasion with a warmth that affected me. Sillez was the first man in the revolution, le premier homme dans la révolution. To him, indeed, we owe it entirely. He it was who accomplished these three measures, the abolition of the three estates, the enrolment of the National Guard, and the division of France into departments. I was walking one day with him in the Champs-Élysées when an officer of the Marais Chaussée overset a poor woman's basket containing les plaisirs des dames, wafers. This can never be, said he, when the National Guard is established. Recorded March the 22nd, 1833 at Lord Holland's. From an unknown correspondent. One day things had been going wrong, and Talleyrand came out of the Emperor's room much irritated, when a man about the court who squinted badly attacked him with, Eh bien, Monsieur le Prince, comment vont les affaires? Talleyrand replied, Comme vous voyez, monsieur. In answer to Madame de Stael, who asked him if she and another lady, noted for her beauty, were both in danger of drowning, which would he help first? Vous savez nager, je crois. Talleyrand to Bob Smith on his praising the beauty of his mother. C'était donc votre I have committed one mistake in life, Talleyrand. Et quand finira-t-elle? I suffer the torments of hell, Talleyrand. Déjà? Talleyrand. Charles Tenth requested the last Pope to absolve him from his coronation oath and was refused. He requested the present Pope was absolved. Pozzo di Borgo. Talleyrand is still alive and will continue to live. Pasque de diable on a peur. The Duke of Wellington to Samuel Rogers. When Lord Londonderry attacked Talleyrand in Parliament and I defended him, saying, in everything as far as I had observed, he had always been fair and honest. Talleyrand burst into tears, saying, Il est le seul homme qui a jamais dit du bien de moi. Dr. Lawrence assured me that Burke shortened his life by the frequent use of emetics. Quote, he was always tickling his throat with a feather. He complained of an oppression at his chest, which he fancied emetics would remove. Malone, than whom no one was more intimate with Burke, persisted to the last in saying that if Junius's letters were not written by Burke, they were at least written by some person who had received great assistance from Burke in composing them. 
and he was strongly inclined to fix the authorship of them upon Dyer. Burke had a great friendship for Dyer, whom he considered to be a man of transcendent abilities, and it was reported that upon Dyer's death, Burke secured and suppressed all the papers which he had left behind him. I once dined at Dilly's in company with Woodfall, who then declared in the most positive terms that he did not know who Junius was. A story appeared in the newspapers that an unknown individual had died at Marlborough, and that in consequence of his desire expressed just before his death, the word Junius had been placed over his grave. Now, Sir James Mackintosh and I, happening to be at Marlborough, resolved to inquire into the truth of this story. We accordingly went into the shop of a bookseller, a respectable-looking old man with a velvet cap, and asked him what he knew about it. I have heard, said he, that a person was buried here with that inscription on his grave, but I have not seen it. He then called out to his daughter, What do you know about it, Nan? I have heard, replied Nan, that there is such a grave, but I have not seen it. We next applied to the sexton, and his answer was, I have heard of such a grave, but I have not seen it. Nor did we see it, you may be sure, though we took the trouble of going into the churchyard. My own impression is that the letters of Junius were written by Sir Philip Francis. In a speech which I once heard him deliver at the Mansion House concerning the partition of Poland, I had a striking proof that Francis possessed no ordinary powers of eloquence. I was one day conversing with Lady Holland in her dressing-room when Sir Philip Francis was announced. Now, she said, I will ask him if he is Junius. I was about to withdraw, but she insisted on my staying. Sir Philip entered, and soon after he was seated, she put the question to him. His answer was, Madam, do you mean to insult me? And he went on to say that when he was a younger man, people would not have ventured to charge him with being the author of those letters. When Lady Holland wanted to get rid of a fop, she used to say, I beg your pardon, but I wish you would sit a little further off. There is something on your handkerchief which I don't quite like. When any gentleman, to her great annoyance, was standing with his back close to the chimney-piece, she would call out, Have the goodness, sir, to stir the fire. Her delight was to conquer all difficulties that might oppose her will. Near Tunbridge there is, or at least there was, a house which no stranger was allowed to see. Lady Holland never ceased till she got permission to inspect it, and through it she marched in triumph, taking a train of people with her, even her maid. When she and Lord Holland were at Naples, Murat and his queen used to have certain evenings appointed for receiving persons of distinction. Lady Holland would not go to those royal parties. At last, Murat, who was always anxious to conciliate the English government, gave a concert expressly in honour of Lady Holland, 
and she had the gratification of sitting at that concert between Murat and the Queen, when, no doubt, she applied to them her screw, that is, she fairly asked them about everything which she wished to know. By the by, Murat and his Queen were extremely civil to me. The Queen once talked to me about the pleasures of memory. I often met Murat when he was on horseback, and he would invariably call out to me, rising in his stirrups, Eh bien, monsieur, êtes-vous inspiré aujourd'hui? Lord Holland never ventured to ask anyone to dinner, not even me, whom he had known so long and so intimately, without previously consulting Lady H. Shortly before his death, I called at Holland House and found only Lady H. within. As I was coming out, I met Lord Holland, who said, Well, do you return to dinner? I answered, No, I have not been invited. Perhaps this deference to Lady H. was not to be regretted, for Lord Holland was so hospitable and good-natured that had he been left to himself he would have had a crowd at his table daily. What a disgusting thing is the fagging at our great schools! When Lord Holland was a schoolboy, he was forced, as a fag, to toast bread with his fingers for the breakfast of another boy. Lord H.'s mother sent him a toasting fork. His fagger broke it over his head, and still compelled him to prepare the toast in the old way. In consequence of this process, his fingers suffered so much that they always retained a withered appearance. Lord Holland persisted in saying that pictures gave him more pain than pleasure. He also hated music. Yet in some respects he had a very good ear, for he was a capital mimic. End of section 20